This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic, your weekly show highlighting the voices of the community. Here, we guide you through today's social issues, introduce you to changemakers, and keep in touch with the arts, music, and events of the city. You can expect extensive research, in-depth analysis, and discussion. From CHUO's news team, this is The Mosaic. Today we take a look at the legacy of Haran Dink as tomorrow marks the anniversary of his assassination. We'll dive into the work he's done for human rights in Turkey as an outspoken journalist. Then Mosaic's very first sports corner. We'll touch on some GG victories on the court, some NFL highlights, and recent news that Pascal Siakam will be traded from the Raptors. Finally, we'll hear another point of skew segment by James Brennan. Today, he's diving into the role of state-sponsored media, addressing the criticisms against it. Stick around. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. In 2007, the murder of a well-known newspaper editor sparked international outrage. Harant Dink had established himself in his efforts for reconciliation between Turks and Armenians. He'd spoken out about the Armenian Genocide, one of the factors that put him on trial for violating Article 301 of the Turkish Penal Code and, quote, denigrating Turkishness, end quote. Turkish nationalists threatened the editor long before his assassination. But 17 years ago, Haran Dink was shot and killed in broad daylight outside of his office. Here's Faithia Tijani with more. Tomorrow marks the anniversary of Haran Dink's assassination, For those who don't know, Dink was a Turkish-Armenian journalist. An interest in politics led him and his brother to open a bookstore where he started writing an Armenian daily newspaper called Agos. It was a bilingual newspaper to be published in both Armenian and Turkish, aiming to benefit the democratic relationship between them. The main purpose of this paper was to create solidarity and section of the Turkish-Armenian community unable to speak their mother language, to share the Armenian culture and history with Turkish society, and to also promote the importance of transparency and a civil society. The Armenian genocide in 1915 was a dark spot on the Turkish-Armenian relationship. Dink specifically referred to the massacre, putting a target on his back. These threats were openly known and this just shed light on how journalists are sometimes subject of violence when carrying out their jobs to inform the public. Heron Dink was eventually killed on January 19, 2007, in the middle of the day. This year's passing of the anniversary is particularly significant because his assassine was released on November 15th. Heron Dink's legacy lives on as he demonstrates the endurance, power of courage, resilience, and the belief that healing historical wounds and building a more inclusive and just society is possible. This message has grown in Ottawa in the form of Voices and Dialogue, a non-profit organization. They share the stories of those with Turkish, Kurdish, and Armenian backgrounds, contributing to the advancement of public awareness of the Armenian people and the after-effects of 1915. Haran Dink's dismiss stands as a significant reminder of the formidable obstacle confronting those who want and courageously confront historical injustice. That was Faithia Tijani on the legacy of Haran Dink. 
And now Tyler brings us updates on the Gigi's basketball wins and more with Sports Corner. Welcome to the Sports Corner. I am your host, Tyler Beauchene. And in this week's news, the GG's women's basketball team faced Laurentian Voyagers last Friday at Montpetit Hall. The match ended in a fourth quarter effort to secure the G's victory. The team is currently 10th in the national rankings. They are looking to climb the ladder before Capitol Hoops next month, and this match certainly helped in that effort. The first quarter started with the GG's putting up some lockdown defense, followed by a contested layup by forward Emily Paint who had a phenomenal game. Here is what she had to say about her performance. I know I'm proud of it. I'm glad I got to contribute and give some energy. Um, I think there's always better to do. Um, they put the pressure on the Voyagers to establish a strong start, hustling for rebounds, causing turnovers when they passed, and laying some huge blocks. The offense was also doing well in the quarter and created good shot opportunities. The G's were beating the Voyagers in three-point shooting and were more efficient in driving the lane, but the Voyagers were creating a stronger paint presence to keep up with the G's. They kept it within a point or two with close shots and layups, as well as creating some crucial turnovers to keep it in the G's end until the quarter finished. The second quarter started with a good offensive effort, but the G's defense would start to struggle. They were leaving players open at the line, which led to big three-pointers for the Voyagers and committing too many fouls to give away free throws. The G's were struggling to establish themselves on the floor as a result. They gave up the lead as the Voyagers pulled ahead and hit a three-pointer from the logo. The effort by the end of the second quarter was very lackluster, as the G's now have a three-point deficit to the Voyagers. The third quarter started with the G's doing better at drawing fouls to create and capitalize on more free throws. Ottawa was able to regain the lead from the Voyagers as their shot selection got a lot better since the second quarter. The G's would still have issues defending three-pointers and causing fouls on the Voyagers, but they still wanted to put up a fight. The fourth quarter started with better three-point defense from the G's as the Voyagers top shooters couldn't hit a single three-pointer to start off. The G's would also struggle to score in the offensive zone with not a single basket scored from each team until 6 minutes and 19 seconds left in the quarter. Keeping the game within a point, the G's were responding back to the Voyagers in a big way as they took over with lots of 3 point shots and a free point. And this boosted the lead by 15 to make the score 68-53. to The game ended on a 3 pointer scored by guard Nadine Katumbayi to end the victory at 71-56. That Friday, also brought victory to the men's team who faced the Laurentian Voyagers. The G's are ranked second in the national standings as they look to keep that spot in this matchup with a team that only has a single win on the season. The first quarter started with a powerful four points from the G's offense and a monster slam dunk from forward Justin Nadak Tajori who had a stellar game. The defense was struggling in the first quarter as the Voyagers were able to score from close. The game kept tight but it would improve as time went on to create more separation on the scoreboard. The team was having a hard time making a single three-pointer for most of the quarter. That is, until guard Dragon Stajic was able to hit a nice jumper for the team's first three of the game. The second quarter started with the G's looking to improve their three-point shooting from the last quarter. On the next play, guard Kevin O2 would set up Najak Tajore for a alley-oop to absolutely stun the crowd. Here's what Najak Tajore had to say on the play. Yeah, it's funny, uh, the practice right before this game, we practiced the exact same play. We messed up the first one, but we got it back to the second one. 
the G's were absolutely dominating the paint with their close shots and big plays at the rim. The defense was all over the Voyagers as they were able to cause a lot of blocks, turnovers, high pressure shots, and traveling fouls to put the ball back into the G's hands. The third quarter saw the G's consistently keeping up the pressure in the paint. They would improve their ability to create quality shot opportunities all around. The defense was struggling by the end of the quarter as the Voyagers were able to sneak past their defenders and make more shots from close. The Voyagers were able to shrink the G's lead just a bit, but only by a point to end the quarter at 51-34. GG's would play the final quarter very shaky on defense, but they more than made up for it with their powerful offensive effort to end with a victory over the Voyagers, 69-56. As in football news, this weekend was an exciting one for NFL fans as the wildcard round of the playoffs started with some exciting games on display. On Saturday, the Houston Texans faced off against the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland quarterback Joe Flacco wanted to take the Browns far into the playoffs. However, this mission was upended by Houston quarterback and rookie sensation C.J. Stroud. Stroud put up 274 yards and three touchdown passes to win 45-14 and move on to the divisional round. The most exciting play was cornerback Steven Nelson intercepting Flacco's pass for an 82-yard touchdown for the Texans as both of Flacco's interceptions ended in touchdowns. Later that night, the Miami Dolphins faced off against the Kansas City Chiefs. Miami wide receiver Tyreek Hill tried his best to get something going, but the extreme weather must have frozen the Dolphins as they were completely unable to stop quarterback Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs from winning 26-7 to move on to the divisional round. Most exciting play was when Hill got a 53-yard touchdown pass from quarterback Tua Tagovailoa. On Sunday, the Green Bay Packers faced off against the Dallas Cowboys. Despite it being their year, quarterback Dak Prescott threw two interceptions, one of which led to a touchdown. The Cowboys put up an embarrassing effort as rookie quarterback Jordan Love and the Packers were able to upset them with a score of 48-32 to move on to the divisional round. This win marks the first time a seventh seed beat the second seed in a wildcard game since the NFL expanded to seven teams per conference. Creating history while losing is a very Cowboys thing to do, as the team has only won four playoff games since 1998. Most exciting play was Aaron Jones's three rushing touchdowns where he secured the franchise record for most playoff rushing touchdowns by a Packer. On Sunday night, the Los Angeles Rams faced off against the Detroit Lions. LA quarterback Matthew Stafford returns to Detroit for the first time in the playoffs since being traded in 2021 for the quarterback he was facing off against. Jared Goff. Both put up great stats, with Stafford putting up 377 passing yards and two touchdowns, and Goff putting up 277 yards and a touchdown. But it was the Lions who walked away in this fierce battle with a score of 24 to 23. This victory would mark the first time the Lions have won a playoff game since 1991. Most exciting play will go to rookie wide receiver Puka Nakua for his 50-yard touchdown reception as he put up nine receptions for 181 yards. On Monday afternoon, the Pittsburgh Steelers faced off against the Buffalo Bills. Despite losing their best defender, left outside linebacker TJ Watt and starting quarterback Kenny Pickett, the Steelers would try to put up a fight against a shaky Bills team. Unsurprisingly, they were destroyed by the Bills as quarterback Josh Allen put up 203 yards on 70% passing rate and scored four total touchdowns on the team. The sounds of Bills Mafia 
flooded the stadium. It absolutely melted the Steelers. The most exciting play was when Allen scrambled out of the pocket and ran for 52 yards to secure a touchdown. On Monday night, the Philadelphia Eagles faced the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. At one point in the season, quarterback Jalen Hurts and the Eagles were 10-1 and on the path to return to the Super Bowl. In the next five weeks, they only won a single game and sought to end the slump in this one. However, that mission was quite unsuccessful as they forgot another quarterback was on a mission. His name, Baker Mayfield. Mayfield absolutely torched the Eagles defense, putting up 337 yards and three touchdowns. Hertz would try and put up a fight, putting up 225 yards and a touchdown. But they were no match for the passion that the Buccaneers brought to the game. A shame as it's believed Eagles center Jason Kelsey will retire after the season is done, though his mind is not made up just yet. Most exciting play goes to the Buccaneers defense stopping the tush-push play that was once seen as unstoppable by the NFL world. Let's hope next week's divisional round matchups are just as exciting as these games were. On Monday, the Ottawa Senators announced through their official social media accounts that they're reassigning goaltending coach Zach Burke to a scouting and development position. Promoted in his place will be Justin Peters, who was the goaltending coach for their AHL team, the Belleville Senators. This was a great move by management, as goaltending has been a persistent issue on the team for the last four years. No matter who the Sens put in net, the goaltending was always ranked below average. If you bring in a different chef each time and the dish still doesn't taste good, chances are the recipe is the problem. Burke had to go, but I'm glad he still got a spot in the organization. Peters has been doing a phenomenal job in Belleville this year, as goaltender Matt Sogard has an 8-5-2 record, two shutouts, and a 9-20 save percentage. With Sogard getting called up after backup goaltender Anton Forsberg was injured, it made sense to bring up Peters as well. The Sens' current starter, Eunice Corpusalo, has been a little underwhelming to start off his five-year contract with the Sens, putting up an 8-8-6 save percentage. If Peters can somehow bring him back to his 900-910 spot that he was playing at last year, the team will already be better than what they are right now. According to Adrian Wojnarowski, the Toronto Raptors have traded star power forward Pascal Siakam to the Indiana Pacers in a three-team deal. The deal was done with both the Pacers and the New Orleans Saints. The Pacers will send small forwards Bruce Brown and Jordan Nuora and three first-round picks to the Toronto Raptors. The Pelicans will send point guard Kiara Lewis and a first-rounder to the Raptors, as well as a second-round pick to the Pacers as part of this deal. Two of the first-rounders from Indiana will be in the 2024 NBA Draft, and the other one will be in the 2026 NBA Draft. The first-rounders from the Pelicans will be in the 2026 Draft, and the second will be in the 2024. The picks will be the one that Indiana got from other teams such as Houston, Utah, and LA. This is a saddening blow to the Raptors fan base as Siakam was a beloved player with the team. He is a two-time All-Star, one-time Most Improved Player, and a key contributor to the 2019 championship run. He is averaging 22.2 points, 6.3 rebounds, and 4.9 assists this season. And the Pacers look to be serious contenders with this move. Until next time, I'm Tyler Beauchene, and this has been Sports Corner.
And here's James Brennan returning with another iteration of Point of Skew, a segment aimed at addressing areas of conflict, confusion, and bias in today's media landscape. Hello, and welcome back to the third episode of Point of Skew. I'm James Brennan, and in this series, I'm aiming to examine the current media sphere we live in. By analyzing the current system and tearing away the proverbial curtain, we can obtain a more effective understanding of the fluff added to some worldwide stories and how it can be used to skew our view of global events. Today's episode will be looking at the most recent update from the Korean Peninsula, which tie into larger topics of state-affiliated broadcasting and relics of the Cold War still in use today. The discussion about state-affiliated and public service broadcasting made its way back into the limelight a couple months ago. This was especially close to home to those of us in Ottawa, when a remark from an exchange on Twitter from Elon Musk falsely mentioned how the CBC is 70% government-funded media. As a student in communications, media study is a massive part of my degree. It feels wrong to see this, and I have grown to understand the misconceptions about this statement after taking courses on public service broadcasting. It's been six months since these courses, but hearing anything about public service versus state-affiliate broadcasting triggers some of the lessons I learned in these courses. For a public service broadcaster to be considered such, there need to be four main aspects covered in their programming. It must be universal, in the sense that all people in the country it serves must be able to access it. It has to be diverse in the genres offered, audiences addressed, and the subjects discussed. It must also be independent, serving as a forum where ideas are freely expressed and information, opinions, and criticisms can circulate. Finally, it needs to be distinctive from other private broadcasting services. These four facets are always in consideration when a public service broadcaster is curating its lineup, whether that be by television or right here on radio. These broadcasters are designed to inform, educate, and entertain at all levels through their programming. With this criteria and set of established goals, it separates itself from both state-controlled broadcasters and even profit-based private broadcasters. Yet, there is still a question of funding. As an inquisitive brain would ask, where does the money come from then? The topic of money is covered extensively on all public service broadcasters' websites, as it's what drives an organization to do what they do. The answer lies in the formation of these broadcasters and how they are able to continue with their purpose. Here in Canada, we live right next to the largest producer of media the world has ever known. The United States is essentially a media factory producing movies, TV, and radio shows since what feels like the dawn of time. As it stands with this information, the preservation of Canadian culture seems like a very difficult task when one's faced with many different types of media, and the CBC was made to directly address this. With culture being at the core of Canadian public broadcasting, it ensures the longevity of what it means to be Canadian. By having the programming be about Canadian culture while identifying with Canadian concerns and stories, it ensures that there is always a dedicated space for them to be shared. Then enters the world of satellite broadcasting and cable television, where the access to other countries' programming becomes available in every house. This had potential to be very damaging for Canadians, as the influx of media could overshadow Canadian stories. The preservation of culture in an educative, informative, and entertaining way is how a public service broadcaster is meant to conduct itself. Now the question of funding said ventures, and the main point. 
Public service broadcasting is funded by many different streams. It's no secret. And by them being public, they need to disclose their earnings each year in annual reports and describe how they made said funds. There are four main sources of income for these broadcasters. Government funding, advertising revenue, subscriber fees and financing, and other streams of income. The other pertains to the selling of content to other stations, real estate sales or rental, selling broadcasting rights to sporting events, and leasing of space at transmission sites. But hearing government funding as a main source of income for public service broadcasting can be concerning, but it's the method in which it occurs where there is clarity. Some public service broadcasters are funded automatically by tax dollars. But here in Canada, the CBC is funded by parliamentary appropriation. Meaning that all elected members of parliament meet and vote. The outcome is the decision of the Parliament of Canada on how much the CBC needs to function. The ironclad protector of the CBC is the Broadcasting Act. It negates any government involvement in their affairs. First created in 1958 and then amended in 1991, the act is meant to acknowledge bilingual nature, be owned and controlled by Canadians, and safeguard, enrich, and strengthen the cultural, political, social, and economic fabric of Canada. The act should encourage Canadian expression by providing a wide range of content and finally reflect different attitudes and opinions, just to name a few aspects. These aspects work together to assure that the CBC is separated from government as it requires a joint decision by all elected members of parliament and a strong set of policies restricting government involvement in the content broadcasted. It's not without its faults, but the Broadcasting Act affirms its position in the eyes of the law and though it is funded by Canadian taxpayer money, it is something that is quite rare in our world. Today's articles are going to be touching on the aspect of state-affiliated media. The articles come to us from Radio Free Asia and RT News from Russia. Both articles have their alignments, with Radio Free Asia being more left-leaning and RT News being more right. Starting with Radio Free Asia, their headline reads, quote, Kim Jong-un labels South Korea as principal enemy, boasts war readiness, end quote. RT's headline for this story is, quote, Kim warns South Korea of potential annihilation, end quote. Today, rather than examining the article for the methods of skew, we're going to be looking at how these two media outlets can have inherent skew in their past conduct and funding. By understanding where a media outlet is coming from, it gives us a reason to look at their content with a more scrutinous eye, and even second-guessing some of what they write as facts. The boom of media occurred in a post-war era where nations found that soft power through media interpretation and influence will be the next great advancement. With this new bipolarity between capitalist and communist, two nations began looking for ways to overcome the other and develop media channels in at-risk areas of turning to the other side. We'll start with Radio Free Asia. When searching for their origins, the majority of the results all lead to American involvement in a CIA operation in its creation. The story develops where it's noted that Radio Free Asia's first broadcast was in 1951, the height of the Cold War, and was spurned on by American politicians who saw that, quote, the people of Asia have more of the facts about the suffering that follows communist aggression. They must be showed alternative to communism, end quote. 
Sources then go on to say, the current Radio Free Asia organization now operates under a 1994 U.S. congressional mandate, the International Broadcasting Act, and no longer has any connection to the CIA or any American involvement. The act is meant to relinquish control of the organization and to, quote, deliver uncensored domestic news and information to China, Tibet, North Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, and other places in Asia. All broadcasts are solely in local languages and dialects which include Mandarin, Tibetan, Cantonese, Uyghur, Vietnamese, Lao, Khmer, Burmese, and Korean." End quote. Both quotes come from the Wilson Center, a group chartered by the American Congress to provide nonpartisan counsel for policymakers through proclaims impartial analysis, deep research, and independent scholarship. However, if we were to read further into the Act, we would find that through the transition and under Section 309, subsection F, we would see that the sunsetting of funds would, did not end until late 1998, equating that mass amounts of money was being sent directly to Radio Free Asia from 1951 to 1998. Other sections that caught my attention was Section 310, that outlined the transition of the change in subsection C, that says, quote, all board for international broadcasting full-time United States government personnel, except special government employees, and part-time United States government personnel holding permanent positions shall be transferred to the United States Information Agency, the board, or the bureau. Such transfer shall not cause any such employee to be separated or reduced in grade or compensation, end quote. After reading this, it immediately calls for a second look. When I read this, I started wondering how many American personnel were working for or potentially running Radio Free Asia for all those years during the height of the Cold War. Funding slowly trickled off till the end of 1998, not to mention with the act passing just three years after the fall of the Soviet Union, potentially meaning that the job was finished. On the complete other side of the same coin, we have RT News, or formerly Russia Today. RT News is one media outlet that is commonly known in the West and in Europe to be one that has fully adopted a stream of misinformation, where it currently serves as a, quote, fire hose of falsehood, end quote, because of its high numbers of channels and messages and a willingness to share partial truths or outright fictions. This quote comes from RAND, an international research organization that researches public policy challenges, it is a nonpartisan and is a nonprofit as well. This is further corroborated by the EU's 2022 decision to outright ban RT News during the early days of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, as it is under, quote, permanent, direct, or indirect control of the authorities of the Russian Federation, end quote, and uses, quote, a systematic and international stream of disinformation, information manipulation, and distortion of facts in order to enhance the strategy of destabilization of its neighboring countries." End quote. After seeing this, I wanted to go looking to see if there was evidence of RT being under direct or indirect control of Russian authorities, as the source mentions. I learned that RT is owned by Rosinia Sugonia, which is actually the present-day rendition of the Soviet Information Bureau, or Soviet Bureau, once responsible for acts such as, quote, exporting print articles to Poland and planting them in local press. Officials sought to disseminate the official Soviet vision of the new empire among newly conquered populations, end quote, during the early post-war years. 
and the bureau to, quote, serve the goal of Soviet foreign policy, end quote. And most shockingly of all, quote, intelligence gathering, which became the organization's responsibility only in 1947, end quote, or leading into the height of the Cold War. By looking at both Radio Free Asia and RT News, their origins in the Cold War, and where they are right now, we may be able to see how the media is used as a tool of influence and to boost a country's soft power while being able to manipulate a population being thousands of miles away. These two outlets are far from being public service broadcasters, and in the current discussion in Parliament, it is a much contested topic. Some don't see the benefit of having a strong public service broadcaster and wish not for tax dollars to fund it. But in a world where it feels that there is always another angle to the information we consume, having a strong alternative that is protected by laws and is guaranteed funding should be something that is even more precious. Having a space to be informed, educated, and entertained covers all the bases of why we consume media in the first place. Canada is a country with so many stories, and many stories to come, and they will always need a stage to be presented. I'm James Brennan, and this has been and will continue to be your call to check the point of skew. Thank you for listening. And that's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Music for The Mosaic is by Halizna. To listen to this episode and previous ones, go to chuo.fm slash podcasts. If you're interested in joining our news team, email news at chuo.fm. We'll see you next week, Thursday at 1 p.m. 